um, <clears throat> what I attempted to do was to start where we kind of left off last week in the middle of the story. Uh, Acts chapters 22 through 25 are very dramatic and pretty much one long narrative. So it's hard to break it up or hard to teach all of it in one session. So we'll just keep going until we have to have a commercial break for the next week. Kind of how it works. So in your handout, you'll see that you have chapter 22, verses 12 through 22, which we actually looked at last week. But this will give you an idea of, if you missed last week, where we were in the midst of the plot to kill Paul. Now, Paul had been in front of the Sanhedrin and uh, didn't go well. They, they didn't... Um, Let's just say they didn't accept his <clears throat> his answers because he brought up the resurrection again and they ended up yelling at each other. Uh, the Sanhedrin were yelling at each other, Sadducees and Pharisees. Do you remember what, how to remember who's who? Because if the one group is sad, you see, and the other is fair, I see. And so you have the Sadducees who are um, pretty much the non-religious religious leaders they controlled the temple they controlled the sacrificial system the Pharisees were the ones who um, dug into the law both the oral and the written tradition of the law and they controlled the synagogues so I actually did a little bit of study this past week because the question came up after the class well whatever happened to them why don't we have Pharisees and Sadducees today? And um, the bottom line is, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the Sadducees had nothing to control. And the Romans didn't want anything to do with the Jewish leaders anymore, so the Sadducees basically lost all power and all legitimacy. The Pharisees, think of it this way, they were the ones out in the synagogues. They were still out there. But it changed from the conflict with the Sadducees and they began focusing on the law itself. And it translated eventually into what we now call rabbinic Judaism. The Pharisees' origins in the Maccabean period was with the Hasidim. You hear a word that sounds familiar to modern Judaism, the Hasidic. So technically, if we want to make an absolute directional arrow, now I'm simplifying this, incredibly simplifying it, but the Hasidic Jews of today could be trace their origins back to the Pharisees of yesteryear. So technically the Pharisees are still with us. You see them with the curls on the side and the tassels and the, the whole nine yards because they're following the written tradition. So that was another rabbit trail that I lovingly have presented back to you. <clears throat> now let's get back to the text because I know it was a question that was just burning on all of your hearts and you've thought about it all week. No, you didn't. Anyway. So the Jews decided that they were going to kill Paul, verses 12 through uh, 14. There were 40 of them who made an oath to never eat or drink until they had killed him. And they had gone to the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and said, Look, make, ask for Paul to come back tomorrow, and on the way we'll ambush them and kill him. So their vow to not eat or drink meant that they would just skip breakfast. It wasn't much of a vow when they, their plan was to take care of him the next day. The plot was overheard by Paul's nephew. You see that in verse 16. So his nephew, we're not sure how old he is. Uh, he's called a young man, which means in Judea, Judaic culture he could have been 14. 
-hmm. He could have had his bar mitzvah and be declared a man, but he's probably in school or he's being mentored by either Sadducees or Pharisees, probably Pharisees because Paul was a Pharisee, in the Jerusalem area. And uh, he went to Paul and told him about the plot. Paul told him to go to the tribune, the leader of a thousand. And uh, we basically see that the tribune has discovered this plot and he's not going to let it happen. And that's when I said, come back next week. So we're in the midst of this vicious plot of minimum 40 men who were going to ambush Paul the next morning. So verse 23. Then he, the tribune, the leader of of a thousand, called two of his centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen, and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Now, that sentence alone is so full of history and drama and detail. 470 soldiers, because you hear about a plot? Is that an overreaction? Probably not. Because if I'm one of 40 and I'm hiding in my, you know, hiding in the alleyway, you know, peering through a slat wall or something, and I see almost 500 marching, I think, well, I'm not committing suicide. How about you? Uh, This isn't going to work. If it was only a hundred men, you take a hundred men by surprise in a dark, narrow alleyway, you might have a chance. You could wipe out the front and the back and still be able to get in and, you know, take care of Paul in the middle of it all and then, you know, disappear into the middle of the, uh, uh, into the chaos. But 500 is significant. Plus, they're leaving in the third hour of the night. Any guess what time that is? 9 p.m. So the leader's not dumb. He diffuses the opportunity for the ambush to happen the next day by leaving in the middle of the night before when nobody knows they're leaving. Now the poor soldiers, they're all sitting there going, wait, what? <laughs> we, we have to march tonight? <sighs> oh, yes, sir, Centurion. Absolutely, sir. You know, I will do my duty. Uh, and if you remember the arrest of Jesus, when did that happen? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember what time it was? It was about 3 a.m., They rousted the soldiers literally in the middle of the night to arrest Jesus. So this isn't unusual. You know, I I imagine these, uh, you have to wonder. You think of firemen in a fire station. They are on 24 hours a day, but they're in shifts. So they have those who are awake in the middle of the night and those who are awake in the morning and those who are awake in the afternoon and they rotate so that they can rest and be ready at a moment's notice and if they need to roust more of them they can but the ones that are in charge so you think of how a Roman garrison would be set up at a time of a lot of rebellious foment in Jerusalem so I was kind of making a joke with you know these guys going, oh, I want to take my nap, I want to go to sleep. These guys were, this was their day, this was their time. This wasn't a big surprise. The other thing that, just a little tiny little side note here, you have the word spearmen. There it says 200 spearmen. Well, who, what are spearmen? Versus soldiers. Well, Think of ancient 
army and ground troops. How do you fight horses if your sword is a foot and a half long? You're just not going to survive the onslaught of a 500 pound beast coming at you. You just get run over. But if you have a long spear, you can jam the end of the spear in the ground, the pointy end on the other hand, and you can fend off horses. You can also <clears throat> uh, keep others at bay uh, just by the fact that these weapons are out further than the reach of an arm. Now it's interesting, the Greek word there doesn't necessarily mean spearman. It literally means holding in right hand. So it has been interpreted as meaning spearman. In fact, that showed up in the Latin Vulgate as spearman. We could have it as 200 holding in their right hand if we wanted to be literal in the Greek. It's just, it's an assumption that what they're holding in their right hand is a spear. That's why one scholar said, oh, he didn't mean spearmen, he meant archers or bowmen. Okay, fine. Um, and he, he, there weren't very many left-handers back then. That was considered a, an aberration. Um, and they would work to push them to the right hand. It's just a natural, a natural thing. So they're going to go to Caesarea. Caesarea is two days away. If you remember back in Acts 21, Paul came from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And in verses 15 and 16, during the journey, they spent the night in a small town. It was a myth, mythless, myth, something like that. In kind of in between the two, because it's a long journey. It's a you know 70 mile walk. You're not going to do that in one day. And so they're on their way to Caesarea. Now, <clears throat> because I can, because I'm the teacher and you have to listen, I went on another rabbit trail, which is why your handouts are lovely today. If you turn to the second page, you will see a picture of Caesarea Philippi, or Caesarea Maritime, or Maritime, or Maritime, however you want to pronounce it. What you have at the top is an artist rendering of what Caesarea Maritime looked like at the time of Paul. This picture below is what it looks like today. <clears throat> Actually, that particular photo is very old. I discovered a more recent one because in 1992 they began to do significant excavation and archaeological survey of that region and they have uncovered a boatload of artifacts and understanding of what this looked like, which is why this drawing, it's some, somewhat accurate, but let's look at the drawing a little bit. You can see in the very bottom, the Roman theater. That Roman theater has been completely uh, uncovered and restored, and they perform theaters there today. So if you go visit this Caesarea, it's apparently one of the more popular places to visit if you go into that, that part of the world. Unfortunately, it's in Lebanon, which isn't exactly a friendly uh, tourist place for many. However, if you go, go there, you can see it. And you can actually watch a, a play. If you go up you notice the, let's just call it the circular area in the top left corner. That harbor was built, this entire city was actually built by Herod the Great 70 years earlier. That 200 foot wide causeway, they also dredged out the water to be 60 feet deep. So this is the perfect harbor to bring in boats from the Mediterranean Sea to protect them when storms came up. If the, if the winds and the waves began to 
rise, they would just crash against the walls and the boats were perfectly safe. If prior to that, if they had a, just a typical harbor, the boats would be at complete risk of destruction. This turned this city into one of the major ports of all of Palestine. In fact, after Herod the Great died, it became the headquarters for all the Roman governors or Roman procurators in Judea for the next 150 years and, and beyond. Up in the top, let's say, top corner, you see the word aqueduct on that map. Now that aqueduct is just to the right of a line that goes straight north. That aqueduct is 20 miles long. So that would be, let's see, from South Mountain to Awa, to, not Awatuki, what's the other direction? North? Anthem. 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 20 miles. So imagine there's an aqueduct that goes all along I-17, bringing water from Mount Carmel, South Mountain, to the thirsty people in Anthem. That feat of engineering is extraordinary. And it worked. And they've uncovered it. They've uncovered large sections that have not, you know, uh, been destroyed over time. Archaeologists have found Pilate's name inscribed in the stones in this area. So we know he was there. In, uh, let's see, starting in 6 AD, Judea became a Roman territory, and so this is where the governor was assigned. On the north side of the upper palace, now you can't, it's not really identified in this drawing, but it's above the Temple of Augustus, just when you're looking at that thing, is the palace itself. The palace is massive. I mean, it's no small thing. Because in the middle of the palace, they have uncovered a pool. That's 115 feet long and 60 feet wide. So I tried to figure out how big that would be. How wide is this room? 30 feet? Approximately? So double the width and then take the far end of the building and the opposite end of the building and a little bit longer and that's the pool. That's bigger than an Olympic sized pool. And this pool is fed by the aqueduct. So it's fresh water. I mean, if you've ever gone on a cruise, it's really disappointing to dive in the water and realize that it's salt water. Because they're not going to have a freshwater pool on a boat in the middle of the ocean. That would be foolish. So you dive in there and think, oh, yeah, oh, wow, can't open my eyes underwater in this place. That's a surprise. And it's, uh, it's right, rather startling. But not in Herod's palace. He builds this luxurious... I mean, just talk about unreal luxury in the corner of the desert on the edge of the sea of the Mediterranean Sea. They're putting in a freshwater pool. However, on the north side of the palace, they've uncovered a mosaic with Latin text written on it that suggests that the northern wing of the palace was a prison. This would be where Paul stayed, right outside the pool. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I don't want to make the comparison of the uh, uh, what do they, they say the you know you, you send the mafia guy to jail, but he's actually in a really nice resort. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that Paul was in a resort, but he was being held in the palace. But the language on that. Latin mosaic has quote a happy future for the assistance in the office of the prison administration 
So they're actually saying, have a good time being in your prison administration. What an odd thing to put in a mosaic. But it would be identifying that this is the prison wing. All right. That's more than you ever wanted to know about Caesarea. But considering the fact that Acts is centered in this section right now, it's really important we understand where this is all happening. This is the seat of government, not Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the seat of the Jewish rule. Caesarea is in Gentile territory. It's not Jewish territory. So it's the seat of Roman government. This is, this is the place where it's all going to happen. Now, the, uh, the tribune, the leader of a thousand, wrote a letter to Felix, the governor, and it reads, starting in verse 26, To his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. The man seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, have learned that he was a Roman citizen. Well, how did he learn that? <laughs> As Paul told him. <laughs> it was not, he's taking credit for something he shouldn't have. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll give him some, la some laxity here. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council. And I found out he was accused about Jewish stuff. Well, actually, he doesn't write Jewish stuff. He's being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him at night, by night, to Antipatris. Which brings us to the next handout, which is, I think, two pages after the chart you see. It's a map. I've had way too much fun creating this handout. Uh, actually took a long time to compile this morning <laughs> uh, to make sure I had it in right, the right order. You can see the journey that we have described here with these soldiers and with Paul. You can get right down and find Jerusalem very quickly, kind of the bottom third of the, uh, the map, and then the arrow going along the main road toward the coast, then up to Antipatris. And then the next day to Caesarea. Now, Antipatris, fascinating little town, um, you know, about 35 miles away, it's known as Aphek in the Old Testament. We find it in Joshua 12, verse 18, where there is a list of 31 kings that Joshua had uh, defeated, including the king of Aphek. And that's where this particular spot is. Herod the Great renamed the town after his father, Antipater. Antipater. So oh, we call it Antipater, however you want to you know, use your syllables. Um, but he named it after his father in around 9 BC. In fact, Josephus mentions this. He said, in memory of his father, Herod founded a city, choosing a site in the loveliest plain in his kingdom with an abundance of rivers and trees and named it Antipatris or Antipatris. Uh, he's making it sound like Herod actually founded the city. He just renamed a town that was already there. But then he added a whole bunch of stuff to make, uh, make it a big deal. As you're looking at this map, I'm going to give you another little, little history moment. In Acts chapter 8, verses 39 to 40, Philip has been has been called to Gaza to speak to the Ethiopian eunuch who was leaving Jerusalem on his way back home. You can find Gaza on this map. It's in the bottom left-hand corner. So Philip goes to Gaza, catches, the, catches up to the chariot that the, uh, the eunuch was in. They have that whole scene. 
But then the verses in 39 and 40, it reads, Acts 8, 39 and 40, And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. Find Azotus on your map. You see it? Just north. And as he passed, passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So you can imagine that Philip was preaching in Jamnia, Lydia, Arimathea, and Anapatris. He was there at some point, probably preaching the gospel to wherever he could all along that way. So there's another little side note, which I lovingly rabbit trailed for you. Before we go any further, I have another little person to unpack for you. Who is Governor Felix? Because Paul is about to go and make his case to the main guy. Pretty much the head of the Roman Supreme Court and there's only one person in it. It's not like they're going to vote with a majority. It's He's the guy. Governor Felix, if you look at your chart, which I provided for you, of all the procurators in Rome in the New Testament time. Now, what you'll find is you can, this proves that I typed this because there is a lovely typo where I discovered a new uh, bird species under... Uh, you see the phrase no procurator and then Heron Agrippa who's a big bad bird Uh, so I just now proved that I typed this because I am a lovely typist who loves to add in words that don't belong anyway it's supposed to be Herod Agrippa the first but note note what's going on here. Let's just take a little history. You're, you're going to be on a history lesson today. This is history and geography. Because we need to keep the Bible in its historical context. Constantly. And if the Bible is giving us this much detail, we're going to go even further. So we have a full understanding of the picture of what's happening. You can read the text for yourself. That's easy. It's digging into it to have a complete understanding of what's happening. Now remember, 6 AD, Herod the Great has died. His legacy goes to his sons. If you remember, there were a number of Herods, which got, it gets very confusing in the New Testament because we think Herod is the first name. Uh, Herod is not his first name. Herod is a title. So there are a bunch of Herods who are running the show. The one who was put in charge of Jerusalem and Judea was named Archelaus. And he was a buffoon. He was terrible. Rome quickly found out that of the three brothers, he was well, he was the dense one. And so they removed him. And in 6 AD, Rome decided, you know, we need to put some one of our people in charge of Judea. It's explosive. It's a volatile area. We can't figure out these Jewish people. And now they have, you know, all this other stuff going on. We need to control them. And probably their revenue had begun to diminish because their king, Archelaus, their Herod, wasn't a good tax collector. So they put in Caponius, which we see right there. He lasted for a few years. Then came Valerius Gratus, who was the main procurator during most of Jesus' early years. And then came Pontius Pilate, who we are very familiar with because of the Jesus story. 
And he's the one who arrested Peter and John afterwards. Then there was a period, we're not quite sure why, but there's a period of time where there was no one in charge from Rome. We don't know if someone died on the way, uh, if there was an assignment that political battle. We're not quite sure what was going on, but in their wisdom, the, um, the, the emperor, I think it was Emperor Claudius at this time, named a Jew as the procurator. Herod Agrippa, going back to the local talent. Unfortunately, he died three years later, and so they had to go back to the previous setup. And you came, now you obviously see a Roman name, Ventidius Camanus, and then came Felix, the one who is in the center of our story today. Felix, his name is Marcus Antonius Felix. What makes him very unusual is Felix was a slave. He was originally a slave. He and his brother served as slaves in the house of Antonia, who was the mother of the emperor, Emperor Claudius. Either they bought their way out of slavery or they were granted freedom by Antonia for their service. But they became freedmen, but immediately began serving the rulers, serving the government. They didn't just go off and open a you know, hot dog stand in Gaul somewhere. They're like, we're going to stay here. We're going to help out. We know these people. They know us. And let's serve them. Paulus was the court favorite. And that's spelled P-A-L-L-A-S. So it's not P-A-U-L. It's P-A-L-L-A-S. Paulus was a court favorite. He ended up helping his younger brother, Felix, get a position in the government in Samaria. After he served there two years, and then it was just a natural thing. We had the need for a new procurator, and Paulus had the ear of the emperor, because he had worked for the emperor's mom, and said, I know somebody. Remember my brother, my little brother? You know, he's, he's, the, he's already there. Why don't you just make him the procurator? Ah, oh, that's easy. I don't have to, you know, do any interviews. I can just pick him out. You know, make him the guy. So in 52 AD, he was made the procurator. There have been some who say that Claudius, Emperor Claudius, did it as a favor to his mother. I mean, who knows? There's so much that goes on on the other side of the history of Rome that influenced what happened in Palestine. We really miss a lot of it because it's not written about it in the text. But later historians write about it, which is why I can speak to this with some, some authority at least because it was written about by Tacitus and by Josephus in detail. A couple years later, Claudius, well, he had already adopted a young man by the name of Nero because Claudius had married Nero's mother, his fourth wife. Yeah, they were very casual in discarding the previous ones. Um, her name was Agrippina, so Agrippa, Agrippina, and uh, she decided that she wanted her son Nero to be the emperor, so she poisoned her husband <laughs> in 54 AD, and Nero became the head. Nero, one of the first things he did is he named Paulus, remember, Felix's older brother, as the treasurer of all Rome. So a slave had risen from the lowest of the low, had now become the treasurer of all Rome and controlled all the money. 
And his brother is the head of one of the most volatile regions in all of the Roman Empire. Mm. Slaves. You can almost imagine the PR that they used. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a, that's a selling point. You could, you know, clickbait that all you want and keep the slaves under control saying, you think there's no hope? Well, look at Paulus. He was one of you. If you just put your nose to the grindstone, do what we ask you to do, you have opportunity. I'm making that up. But, it, you know, if I was in charge, I'd certainly use that story, especially if somebody's making a, you know, making a fuss and a ruckus somewhere. Unfortunately, Felix was not a nice person. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote this, Quote, practicing every kind of cruelty and lust, Felix wielded royal power with the instincts of a slave. And he stimulated outbreaks of Jewish unrest by injudicious disciplinary measures. That's a nice way of saying that he made it so horrible to be a Jew under his rule that they were revolting all the time. Remember, if you remember the little tiny side note we had last week when we were talking about the high priest Ananias? Yeah. That there was a fellow by the name of Jonathan who was actually high priest? Mm -hmm. Felix didn't like him. And so conspired with assassins mm -hmm. to have him stabbed in the temple and killed. That's Felix. Yeah, lovely guy. You know, just a real sweetheart of a fella. Josephus said Felix used to have soldiers daily track down zealots and immediately execute them. Somewhere in the region, someone was being arrested and crucified almost every single day all around the region. This is how he kept control. Remember, we, we talked about this briefly, the Pax Romana, Romana, the peace of Rome. They would let the people kind of do what they wanted as long as they didn't upset the boat and paid their taxes. Kind of sounds like America and Britain sometime in the 1700s. Just don't make a mess, just pay your taxes. Problem is, if you raise the taxes and then people get upset, so there's always that balance. But there was this consistent challenge and the procurator was the ultimate tax collector. Start at the, you know, basically in the town square and then the money moved its way up and then was sent to Rome. And if they didn't meet their quota or if they didn't meet their budget, Paulus, the treasurer, would go, hey, Felix, dude, where's the money? Uh, yeah, give me another week. You know, <laughs> it's just, this is not, they don't toy around with this. This is why when you look at this list of procurators, they don't last very long, especially in this region, because they're dealing with the Jews who are already uh, predisposed to uh, reject the oversight. It has not been that long since the Jews were in charge of everything. It's not even a hundred years. You know, I a mean, hundred years ago was the Maccabeans and they, they literally controlled all of Palestine. They were the place. They had their own kingdom. And now they're having to pay taxes to these interlopers. Put it this way. In 59 AD, Felix was removed by Nero after an inept handling of an uprising in Caesarea Maritima. A dispute had come between the Jewish population and the Syrian inhabitants' citizenship status. It led to rioting and street fighting. Tacitus said one day the Jews were victorious and Felix came into the marketplace. 
So he just walked out of his palace, walked down to the marketplace, and ordered the Jews with threats to retire, to go home. They refused, and so he sent soldiers against them and killed them, and then promptly plundered their property. How well would that go over with the Jewish people? Granted, this is a Gentile area, but it's the Jews in Caesarea that were being oppressed. Well, obviously, Jerusalem complained to Rome, which they were allowed to do. And Nero heard about it and went, oh man, as much as I like your brother, Felix, you're out. Okay. That was quite an excursus and a and look, we're only two verses into today's lesson. Alright. So when they came to Caesarea the next night or the next day, and by the way, if you look at verse thirty two, uh, they sent the soldiers back and they kept on by horse. Because they have crossed the line in Gentile territory. <coughs> the possibility of an ambush was no longer as possible. Apparently, the last six or seven miles before getting to Antipatris was a very hilly and windy way. And if you think of the topography of Arizona, it's very similar to the topography of Palestine. And if you could think of some of our northern hills, let's say we were going to take a walk to Prescott. You'd have some areas that are flat, and then some areas that are very uphill, and then some areas you're kind of going around hills and valleys. Imagine at the top of the hill before Sunset Point, you're on the way up that thing, you're tired, and there's ruffians in the hills. You've got to have your army with you. But once you get to Sunset Point, okay, fine. Send them home. We can make it the rest of the way with just horses because we can move quicker and we don't need as many soldiers. So they made the rest of the trip the next day. And they got to Caesarea, verse 33, and they delivered the, the letter to the governor and presented Paul before him. On reading the letter, letter, Felix asked what province Paul was from. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. Now, he was asking about Paul's origin for the sake of jurisdiction. Did Felix have jurisdiction to handle this case? He needed to make sure. It's very, it's very interesting. I came across uh, one note in a commentary that said, it's really fascinating that all future Roman historians, starting all the way back to Tacitus, will refer to the scriptural rendering of this trial in their understanding of how Roman governorship worked and how the court system worked. Because the detail is so extraordinary, just a simple question about jurisdiction. We hear it all the time here. I mean, I imagine You've got, uh, what, what there's issues, uh, I think it was Illinois, that uh, I think Jeannie and Jonathan were telling us about a police chase. And they were chasing this guy and they needed to stop him before he hit the county line. Mm -hmm. Because if he crossed the county line, they could no longer continue the chase. It was no longer in their jurisdiction. That creates problems in police work. You have the same issue with the legal system. I imagine in the law that you bring something before a court, the judge says, why are you bringing this to me? You, don't, you have no standing here. You're not even allowed to talk in this room right now. Get out, because you don't have jurisdiction. So for him to ask that, oh, we would look at that and go, oh, that's normal. But here, it was, a, it was an important thing. Now, Cilicia is up far up north. I mean, Syria, Tarsus. Technically, it fell under the legate 
L-E-G-A-T-E, of Syria. Felix reported to that guy. But that guy had such a vast territory that there's no way he was going to deal with an issue like this, kind of a local dust-up. So Felix, realizing it's his responsibility, he says, okay, I'll make the hearing, but your accusers have to come. And he commanded Paul to be guarded in Herod's praetorium, which is a fancy word for palace. Yes, yeah, because it's technically house arrest. He couldn't leave, but people could come visit him, they could talk to him. He wasn't in chains necessarily. He just, they would just wanted to make sure you just don't, don't leave until we adjudicate this situation. Someone who's guilty of something would then be placed into a jail or punishment would be meted out in some form or fashion. So it is a little bit different in this particular case. Um, I actually wrote here, so what about the vow of the assassins? Yeah. All those poor guys are getting hungry now. I mean, it's been a full day and they're going, God, man, I, I could use a burger. You know, it's like, can we get out of this vow now? I mean, he's, he's gone. Well, it is well known that a vow of this nature could be washed away by the Sanhedrin council they could dismiss it. Because they were making the vow before God, before them, they could say, you are no longer under its, uh, its thing. So I, I just think, imagine their distress. They wake up the next morning, they're all ready. Man, we're gonna get him. What do you mean he's gone? What? Where? Caesarea? Oh man, well, Oh yeah, there were 500 soldiers with him. Oh, well, maybe it was a good idea we didn't try that. So now we've finished chapter 23. And look, we're almost out of time. Uh, isn't that fascinating? And I was planning on doing the entire chapter 24 today. <clears throat> well, the rest of it does go a little more quickly. But you will see verse 24 again significant amount of detail is applied here. It says, five days after the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one named Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. Now, there's something you need to, to note in the structure of chapter 24. It's broken into three parts. Three parts that are almost, well, I wouldn't say completely equal in length, but close enough. Verses 1 through 9 are the Jewish charges against Paul. Verses 10 to 21 are Paul's reply to the charges. And then verses 22 to 27 is Felix's response. And so you have 9 verses, then 11 verses, then 6 verses. It's a very structured process partly to help tell the story, but partly for us to see what was going on. And it says it was after five days. Well, why would it take five days for the high priest to show up? It was only a two-day trip. Well, number one, it took two days for the message to get from Caesarea back to Jerusalem. You know, he's up here. You have to come to lay out the charges. It took him a day to find a lawyer. A guy named Tertullus. Sorry, that was an easy joke. But anyway, it took him a day to find a lawyer. Uh, whoever the spokesman is, in some translations, actually says lawyer. It, it's not the word for lawyer, but it's a, most likely it's a Jew who knew Roman law, not a high priest who wouldn't necessarily know it and someone who spoke Latin. Because remember, when we were talking about the other trial, when everyone started yelling, when the Pharisees and Sadducees were yelling at each other, and the tribune is sitting there going, what is going on? They're yelling in Aramaic. They're yelling in Hebrew. And he's going, speak Latin. 
I don't understand you. It's just, there's all these languages going on, and this trial is going to be in Latin. The language of Rome. So they need to find someone who could have the legal standing, have the ability to be their spokesperson, but also could speak the language. And he also only charged $500 an hour, so he was a real, it was a, quite a deal. And that, that guy's like, dude, do I get $500 an hour for the trip too? Wow, I'm, I'm there. Um, but then it took two days for them to travel back. That's the five days. They show up, and they lay before the governor their case against Paul. And when he'd been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul. And we get into some really interesting uh, things. The flattery in verses 2 and 3. Oh, we've enjoyed so much peace since your foresight, a most excellent Felix. Reforms have been made. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Baloney. You hate the guy. You're trying to do whatever you can to fight against him, except for the Sadducees who were willing to keep their power with Roman oversight. But it needs to be positioned this way for the public. So if anybody tells the story that they were being, you know, solicitous to the Roman uh, authorities. But we don't want to detain you any further, and so I beg your kindness to hear us briefly. We found this man a plague. Some translations say troublemaker. Who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Well, let's pull that apart a little bit. Let's just stop for a moment. How many times has Paul been accused of sedition? Let's see. He was plotted against at Damascus. He was plotted against at Jerusalem. He was expelled from Pisidian Antioch. He was stoned at Lystra. He was scourged and imprisoned at Philippi. He was accused of treason in Thessalonica. He was called before the proconsul at Corinth. He was accused of causing a riot in Ephesus. And now he's accused of causing a riot in the temple. You've got the count? That was nine times. And Paul goes, it must be Tuesday. I mean, this is his life all these years. Everywhere he goes... This is such a common occurrence. So Paul, this is, Paul's not surprised. He's not happy. He's not living his dream. But he is being called as a spokesperson for the gospel of Christ wherever it goes. Knowing full well wherever he goes, it's going to create this type of reaction. So technically, when he says he stirs up riots all through the Jews throughout the world, the guy's right. He's not shading the truth here too much, but he's not bringing all the other incidents because he probably doesn't know about them all. But saying he's a reading leader of the sect of the Nazarenes, now the word sect is not necessarily a pejorative, it's just a description. It's the group, a religious group. But the, calling them the Nazarenes, this is the first time that the Jews are calling the Christians Nazarenes. What are other descriptions so far in the New Testament of Christianity? The way in particular. And, but he doesn't talk about it under that title. He uses the negative form. Remember, Jesus was from... Nazareth, and nothing good can come from Nazareth. This is intentional. It's an intentional phraseology. Now, there have been some people who get mixed up when they hear this phrase, sect of the Nazarenes, and the fact that Paul had been performing the Nazarite vow. They're not the same thing. They're actually two very different words. The Nazarite vow has nothing to do with the word Nazarene. Nazarene's a town. Nazarene's a city. It's it's a town. There's no. It's not a city. A small backwater town. 
The Nazarite vow was related to an Old Testament practice, probably even before the town of Nazareth was established. So don't make the mistake of combining the two. They are not connected. They just sound a lot alike to us. My guess is that calling them the Nazarenes was a derisive name for anyone who followed the way if you were a Jew. You'd say, oh, there's with the Nazarenes. Oh, those people. Oh, they're kind of like the Samaritans. Yeah, I know. Because the Samaritans were the half-breeds. And if you remember, in John 19.19, 19, Nazareth was part of the inscription on the cross above Jesus' head. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was intentional. So, he's even tried to profane the temple. Remember, they were trying to say that he brought a Gentile into the temple area, which he didn't. And the thing is, it wasn't against the law to bring someone in. It's the person who went in was the one who was killed. So that's kind of a made-up accusation. And they seized him. And by examining him yourself, you might be able to find out from him about everything which we've accused him. I looked at that word examining, and I happened to remember when the tribune arrested Paul. First he thought he was an Egyptian, and then they strung him up to examine him with a whip. And that's when Paul said, are you going to whip a Roman citizen? And it's the word examine. It's the same word here. So you have to wonder. Nobody ever brought this up, but I, it jumped out at me. Maybe it's just because I'm looking at it in English. Um, that the Jews were saying, well, if you whipped him a little, he might be able to tell you what's going on. But they can't because he's a Roman citizen. Now, as a class, uh, I would like to have you all read verse 7 with me. Go ahead. It's right there. We just did. <laughs> you just did. Verse 7 is actually at 6b through 8a is not in the earliest manuscripts, and so they have taken it out. You might find it in the footnotes at the bottom of your, your translation. It will show down there. And it reads, if I were to add it in, uh, we seized him and we would have judged him according to our law, but the chief captain Lysias came and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before you. And by examining him yourself, you'd be able to find out from him. Though, though that section, and there are the, f the four earliest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament in Greek, do not have those words. So there are many feel that it was just added in to flesh out the Jewish argument. Because there's nothing wrong that's being said here. It's just unnecessary. And so it's been removed from most modern translations. And I just thought you would enjoy trying to read it together. Um, this is some of the things that can be very confusing to those of us who believe in the sanctity of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. Be very careful you don't see something like that and then have someone come at you. See, modern translations are all wrong. They make it up as they go. Now, there is very specific reasoning behind it and it's very consistent throughout the New Testament where if there is an older version that doesn't have it they're going to remove it from the translation so that we're not confused by additional uh, language that was added later uh, much later it's like a couple hundred years later and there are, there's the arguments to saying the more manuscripts there are, the more weight it should carry. The thing is, when it gets added in, and then it gets copied and copied and copied and copied and copied, copied, and they're more recent, means they're better preserved, you end up with more copies with an error or additional material in it. So, if you want to ask more, talk to, talk to Dr. John Mead. He knows all that stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm just an amateur here. Uh, <clears throat> all right. 
See, the, the King James Version adds Yes. King James is based on the majority text, which is why you have those will say that the King James is uh, more excellent than the modern translations because the King James fo followed the, the more there is, the better. Uh, back in a time when New Testament scholarship was not at its level now, in fact, many of the manuscripts we've discovered hadn't been discovered yet in 1611 when the King James was put together. I could do a whole class on the origins of the New Testament. And it says the, that the chief captain Lysias came upon us and the great violence took him away out right. of our hands. So they added quite a bit of material. The person who's not even mentioned. Yeah, yeah, added it in. So we've actually gone a full hour and come back next week. <laughs> We're right in the middle because now we need to go into Paul's defense <clears throat> which is very extensive and then an entire section on uh, what happens to Paul at the end of this particular trial so before I go before we go one of your challenges when you have a class like this because I'm not standing up here as a pastor trying to bring you a big idea to take home with you during the week. And yet I'm always very cognizant of what can we pull away from this? Because this is an exercise in history. It's an exercise in research and historical accuracy and detail. One is we can look at how Paul is responding to all of this with an unjust, an unjust accusation. I came across one, um, one story of a fellow who said he had been accused, didn't even know he had been accused of a million dollar error at a hospital where he was working. He didn't even know he was in the conversation but he had been in the room where that decision had been made. So the person who made that decision decided to blame the error on him because he was one of the ones in the room. I had it happen. You had it happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you were falsely accused because you were in the presence in a meeting where a decision was made and you go, okay, whatever, it's not my decision. The next thing you know, the entire apparatus of the organization is coming at you saying you're the perpetrator you're the one who needs to be fired you're going wait what are we talking about that's unjust and I imagine you probably followed Paul's example you didn't get angry <laughs> you just simply accepted it in with all grace and, and but seriously our reaction with injustice against ourselves personally is to basically lose all testimony to the Christ that's in us. Because we want to fight for ourselves. We want to fight for what's right. And you look at Paul, does he fight? Yes, but with grace and with truth. And he lets truth take its direction. When we get to the end of this one section, doesn't exactly have the outcome he was hoping for, maybe, because he wasn't released. In fact, he's never released. At the same time, he never stopped losing or presenting his faith at every opportunity. And I think that is one of these side things where you're reading along just okay this is an interesting story and wow there's a lot of drama going on and we're done no the bible has things in its word for a reason and i think that may be one of them that we could pull out for our week and our time yeah i was thinking you know for paul and i, and I think this is what helps us when we go through these things is he wasn't having a, a earthly temporal vision of having an eternal vision and he knew that this was the road that God already told him you were going to go on to 
bear his name even to Caesar, right? Yeah. And and if we can have that view, like when I'm being falsely accused and the, the potential of losing everything on this earth that I find, you know, it's like, no, I'm here to give a testimony to Christ. Yeah. You know, that just changes the brain, you know, in a way that doesn't when you're focused on, I can't, I, I, we could, I could go bankrupt, I could lose, you know what I mean? You start listing all the earthly things you're going to lose. Right. Instead of thinking of all the heavenly joy that God has watching you trust yeah. Him, you know. Yeah, well, in 1992, I was fired at my job. I lost a political battle I didn't know I was fighting. Yeah. I just, I had no idea that it was coming. No warning, nothing. Just suddenly, boom. I came home after this meeting and said, Hi, honey, I'm no longer employed. It's like, wait, what? I was supposed to be going to California. I'd been offered the vice presidency of the company just a month earlier, and all these things happened just suddenly. But there was a political battle. And I wouldn't say that I handled it <laughs> perfectly. Um, but you come to situations, again, injustice. Paul is, every charge here is made up. And yet he's willing to stand and defend himself once. He throws in the resurrection and the Sanhedrin, which I was like throwing a hand grenade in the room. And they all get all, you know, like, okay, well, I, I won that battle. But I got to be taken to the Romans. And I get to speak to the head of the entire region. And we'll see what he does when he has that opportunity next week. So, oh, you had one more question. Well, that's why it's helpful when you give all the backstory about, you know, the two slaves and they become, you know, elevated in the system and, you know, deals done and political shenanigans. It's helpful because that's what's going on in our lives. Well, if we don't understand the details, mm -hmm. you know, still it doesn't change the result. No. But once you, you get a better and a fuller understanding of what's going on, especially when we're coming as, as outsiders, to a very old story. I'm just grateful Luke had all the details here. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together for exploring the excruciating details in detail. And yet, what a great opportunity we have to be able to dive into your word in this way as fellow believers who love your word and appreciate the message that you bring to us and try our best to apply it to our lives so that we can build your kingdom for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.